This is Ian Freebairn Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. For today, we're going to hear from Rush, Russ Garcia, and uh, he has he was my first teacher, as a matter of fact, and uh, I think I was 16 at the time. I'm now 80. <laughs> Russ, can you come up? If I was teaching you, at, you were 16 and you're now 80, what does that make me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you have to know, I'm 91, but still working flat out all over the world. <clears throat> so music will keep you young. And uh, I, I can tell you hundreds of stories. I've been around a while. He said some of them true. So I am the luckiest person on earth, I think. I've never worked in my life. I write music and they give me money for it, and it's still going on. I'm uh, doing a CD with a girl jazz singer from New York City. She'll be coming out here this month. Yeah, next month. Yeah, July. <clears throat> and I'll be doing a CD with her out here. In fact, I think she'll sing in this club one evening. Her name is Shaney Rainbolt. I don't know if you know of her, but anyway, she's, she's quite good. Now, I've worked with so many wonderful people, and uh, but you know when I walked in today, looking around, I was so happy to see a few people uh, I knew because when I look in the Union magazine, I don't like to look in it because every time I open it, my friends are dropping off like flies. <clears throat> you know, I expect to open up one day and see my own name in there, and uh, <clears throat> I. Oh, I don't know where to start. I've had the wonderful pleasure of working with so many wonderful artists, <clears throat> like the Oscar Petersons, George Shearings. The you know Oscar is still going. He's still playing. His left hand isn't what it used to be. He plays some chords there, and he could play eight times as much as anybody else with his right hand, though. <clears throat> And, you know, talking about his left hand, I was recording him. We were using the Capitol Studios, and we were rehearsing, big orchestra. We're rehearsing, and he's in the middle of a jazz solo, and Nat Cole walked in the door, and Oscar's shaking hands with Nat and carrying on a conversation. He continued his jazz solo with his left hand, and... Uh, when he got to the end of the chorus, the whole orchestra applauded, and Oscar looked up like, what happened? <clears throat> so it's a shame he lost some of that left hand, but he's still playing like a demon. And uh, George Shearing, I'm afraid, is through. He, he can't play anymore. It's, it's so sad. But what are you going to do? But you writers, you can go on and on. You know, <clears throat> my creativity... My mind seems musically working as well as it ever did, maybe better. I had to give up my trapeze act, of course, you know. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm so fortunate. Still working all over the world. Mostly I'm working either arranging for symphonies, 
symphonies are trying to get a younger image now and get a new audience. So they bring in a singer, you know, from Vegas or someplace, and they need a lot of arrangements. And <clears throat> I live in New Zealand at the moment when I'm home. I travel, I work in China, I work in Prague, Munich, uh, Hollywood, wherever they offer me a few bucks, there I am. <clears throat> and uh, I was just talking with my friend down here <clears throat> about uh, problems, publishers and such. And I was telling him a story about Ira Gershwin. I can tell you several stories about Ira. I, I've done two uh, CDs, well, sets of CDs, <clears throat> which have become kind of cult classics. I did one several years ago with a narrator for Bethlehem Records. I had to use all their jazz artists, and they used Francis Fay and Mel Torme and Johnny Hartman, all of their, and all of their wonderful jazz blowers. <clears throat> they become kind of cult classics. Ira hated these things. He didn't want anything different than George had written in his score. At MGM, when they made the film, Ira insisted everything had to be in those original keys. You know, summer's time starts as a lullaby, a little baby starts on an F sharp up at the top of the staff. Some of you know where that is. <coughs> a lot of young arrangers don't now, you know. <coughs> but uh, nobody could sing their own parts in the movie. We had to call in Lily Jean Norman and Marnie Nixon and the studio singers to sing their parts for them. Uh, Sammy Davis was the only one that could sing. He did sport and Ira wouldn't even let them go on location. They had to build a set like the Broadway stage show and <laughs> film that at MGM. Anyway, uh, another story. When I think George would have loved what I did on that Bethlehem thing. It's become a cult classic. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when they said... They had me fly back to New York, and we're going to do Porgy and Bess. Uh, and they, they said, we're using Francis Faye and Mel Torme. I said, which one is Porgy? Because <laughs> <coughs> Francis is a big, muscular girl, and Mel is uh, fairly small. <coughs> and uh, so George would have loved it. You know, we used a, a narrator that saw the story happening all the way through. <coughs> So it has the excitement. I took fragments out of Gershwin's Porgy and Bess and wrote backgrounds for the thing. I did a lot of changing. I, I made quite like more of a modern jazz thing out of it. George would have loved it, but Ira hated it. <clears throat> you know, once in Las Vegas, uh, uh, was it the Tropicana? No, no. One of the big hotels, maybe the Sands, had a big opening number, opening night. They had used Rhapsody in Blue about 12 minutes at least of it. There's a hundred people on stage, you know, and volcanoes and waterfalls and all kinds of things. And they had used the Rhapsody in Blue, and, or a good part of it. And Ira Gershwin was in the audience. <clears throat> He ran to the manager and said, if you don't have this out of the show in two weeks, I'm going to sue you for $4 million. And they said, what will we do? So the band leader said, call Russ. And they're trying to get me on my telephone service in Hollywood. It was called Nina in those days, ancient history to some of you. But somebody said, you're trying to get Russ? He's across the street with Eleanor Powell's opening. And uh, <clears throat> so they came and got me. And I had to write music that was the same tempos and the same lengths of everything. It, 
It couldn't sound like Rhapsody in Blue, but it had to be the same pattern in tempos and such because you couldn't teach a hundred chorus girls all new routines to new music. Anyway, in two weeks I had it ready. We called it the Rhapsody in Green. <clears throat> so, so I've had my experiences with Ira. Now, you know, I got to work with so many great people. Dizzy Gillespie I got to become very good friends with, too. I just mentioned George Shearing, you know, he's kind of out of it. You all know George, you're not that old. <clears throat> he's a blind English pianist, a fabulous jazz pianist. He's been blind since birth. Uh, we were backstage in Munich uh, at a jazz festival, and <clears throat> Dizzy walks over to George, and he puts his arm around him, and he said, George, Probably nobody ever told you, but you're a black. <laughs> now, in music, jazz, that's a compliment. <clears throat> now, but how would he know? He'd been blind all his life. <clears throat> and uh, what other stories can I tell you? Oh, I work with Judy Garland a lot. Is Mort uh, Lindsay still around? Great, I was hoping I'd see him here. No, he... Uh, he was Judy's piano conductor, <clears throat> and he'd get keys on a lot of things and routines, and he'd hire me to write the arrangements for the orchestra. And uh, so I'd done loads and loads of things for Judy, and Mort was a good arranger himself, too. I'm not taking anything away from him. But he, uh, <clears throat> she uh, went in and caught, Judy Garland went in and caught Vic Damone's show one night, and uh, she went backstage to compliment Vic at the end of the show, and she said, hey, wonderful arrangements, who wrote these? And Vic said, Russ Garcia. And she said, I must get him to do some things for me. She didn't know a good share of her book I'd written. <clears throat> is is uh, uh, the arranger, Larry Russell's been gone for years, but <clears throat> I worked with Charlie Chaplin on the film Limelight, a wonderful film. And he's, he's a genius. He's really wild. He picked out the two main themes with one finger on the piano. You know, da-da-da-da-da, la-da-da-da, beautiful melodies. <clears throat> of course, he's not able to write these for the 65-piece orchestra to fit the timing and the moods of the scenes and such. So that's where I came in. Now, Ray Rash, I don't know if, I think he's, oh, he's, Gone, long gone. Boy, everybody is. <laughs> you better not talk to me. It's contagious. <clears throat> it's, uh, but Ray Rash was his pianist, and they wanted to give uh, Chaplin an Academy Award uh, many years later because, you know, Chaplin lived in Switzerland, left, made a trip back to England, and they wouldn't let him come back in the States because some stupid congressman uh, which said he's was part of the Communist Party or something. He didn't care about politics. He went to a communist meeting once when he was very young to find out a little bit about what it was, but he wasn't. They said he's earned all his money in America. He'd never become an American citizen, so they wouldn't let him come back. So he went and lived in Switzerland <clears throat> with his gorgeous young wife. Not a bad life. <laughs> and they wanted to give him an award many years later. Academy Award. And he said, wait, somebody by the name of Russell worked with me on this film and he should share this award. So they uh, 
went to Ray Rash's house. He, I was in New Zealand then. And uh, his wife said, uh, I think it might have been Larry Russell. So they went to, La see, because Ray had died. And they went to Larry Russell's wife. Larry Russell had died. And she said, yeah, I think he did it. So they gave the Academy Award to Charlie Chaplin and Larry Russell. And the next day, my phone in New Zealand is ringing all day long with people apologizing, people that knew who did the work. But anyway, I didn't want to kick up a big fuss, you know, sour grapes, send letters to Variety and all this. So I just said, the hell with it. Award programs are a little bit of a farce now. There's so many of them. They should have an award show for the best award show, I think. <clears throat> But anyway, they are valuable. If you win one, it helps your price go up a little bit, I'm sure. Now, when I was a kid, you know, when I'm going on too long, I can't see if anybody's falling asleep, so get a big hook or something. And uh, when I was a kid, I was so lucky. I was born in Oakland because I wanted to be near my mother. And I, I don't, don't, don't laugh. It only gets worse. <clears throat> I was so shocked I didn't say a word for a year and a half. <coughs> but uh, I was so lucky. I went to a high school and we had two great music teachers there, Oakland Tech High. One played French horn with the San Francisco Symphony before, but he could play every instrument. Herman Trutner, Jr., he could play violin, flute, trumpet, everything. And uh, he saw that I was so gung-ho when I, I was a young kid. I was the youngest kid in high school because they skipped me several grades when I was very, very young. I guess the schools were getting too full and they had to move me over. And uh, so I was already writing arrangements, our little jazz band that we formed. And uh, so he saw I was so gung-ho that he had me write in this school we had two concert orchestras, like little symphonies, and a concert band, a marching band, of course, and we kids formed a jazz band. And he had me write compositions for the orchestra. He had me conduct my own things. He went through my scores and helped me with everything I wrote. And another teacher taught me harmony and counterpoint. Imagine in high school getting all of this. So... I had a pretty thorough foundation by the time I got out of high school and went to San Francisco State. At that time, the teachers had learned out of the books there, and they were teaching out of them. They couldn't write arrangements or compositions, and I was already a professional, you know, playing in the San Francisco hotels and writing for the bands and such. <clears throat> so after a year, I quit and went on the road with bands. That was a great era Big bands were coming into their own. Such a such a joy to. Sometimes I'd play fourth trumpet in the band, you know, cause, but they always uh, wanted me in the band because I could write a good arrangement. So I got to work with a lot of the big name bands, you know, a lot of not so big name bands, but a lot of the big ones: Harry James, Bob Crosby, later Stan Kenton, and Sam Donahue. Well, a lot of them. <clears throat> And after three years on the road, I'm not learning much. I'm learning by writing arrangements and hearing them played every week. But I said I'd quit and I'd come to Hollywood, see what I can do there. I can study. So I, I went to the finest teachers I could find. Luckily, 
Edmund Ross there, he taught a lot of the, some of you are too young to remember, but he taught a lot of the film composers here. And uh, Sir Albert Coates, luckily, had a rehearsal symphony. He was a conductor, English conductor, really Russian background. But he uh, had a rehearsal symphony every Wednesday in Plummer Park out here. And so I got to conduct a poem or a movement out of a symphony every week for two and a half, three years, because a lot of the studio musicians came for this rehearsal orchestra, just a change of scenery, you know, playing this kind of music. So that was wonderful experience. I had taken a job down in Lick Pier Ballroom, you know, down in Ocean Park, playing trumpet, and luckily... Uh, I was writing music, and chamber groups were playing it a bit around here. And uh, when uh, there was a radio show that had drama movie stars on every week here, and uh, they, uh, their conductor-composer got ill one week, and what can we do? It's three days till showtime. Who can do this? And a friend of mine that was working the show said, I have a friend that'll do you a great job. So they called me in, and apparently I did a fairly good job because when they started the next 13-week series, they hired me instead of the other conductor, which is sad, but lucky for me. You'd never, <laughs> you'd never guess who was the director on the program. It was Ronald Reagan. I, I never dreamt he would be world I mean, United States president <laughs> one day. I, I couldn't imagine it, but he was a good actor, and you've got to be an actor to be a politician anyway, I guess. <clears throat> but uh, he was married to Jane Wyman then, a lovely girl, and we became quite good friends. And so when that went off the air, I went in the drugstore at Hollywood and Vine. It used to be a big drugstore there, and <clears throat> I had some acetates under my arm. <clears throat> That's before digital. Or <clears throat> and uh, I was going to try to phone a William Morris or MCA or some of the other agents, see if I could find some somebody uh, that might get me a little work, maybe films or something. So I, I went into the phone book, and here on the bank of phone books, there was a script said Jane Wyman at printed on it, and I picked it up, and she was just coming out of the phone book and walking out of the door, and I said, Jane, I said, Russ, what are you doing? And I told her what I was up to. She said, you walked down the street two blocks to NBC. NBC was on the corner of Sunset and Vine then, <clears throat> and talked to Bud Dent. He's musical director there. Maybe he can give you a little work. She said, he'll be nice to you. She said, I just gave him a horse as a present last week. So, yeah. <laughs> So I went down to NBC and they said, I'm sorry, Bud Dent just left this job this week. We have a new musical director. Do you want to talk to him? So I'm on the phone at the artist center. I said, yes, please. It was Tommy Peluso. And uh, he said, write me two things. <clears throat> he told me what the orchestra consisted of, the staff orchestra, you know. <clears throat> he said, well, write me an original and write me a, an arrangement of some known thing, and leave the score at the artist's entrance. I'll have them copied. If I like them, I could maybe give you some work. And he liked them, so I became eventually staff composer arranger NBC for several years until they started a war in Europe, and they needed me over there. So uh, they had me come over. I won the war single-handed in Europe, World War II. That's ancient history to all of you, I think. <laughs> anyway... 
I was in the American infantry because when I got drafted, they sent me right up to Camp Roberts and they said, you have the IQ, do you want to go to officer's training school in Georgia? I said, no, because I knew requests were coming in for me from different motion picture units, from the band at Camp Roberts, from different places, several requests were coming in for me as a musician. But I didn't know they were planning running into Normandy Beach, you know, the invasion there. Hey, <laughs> thank you. That's straight, Jen. <clears throat> and uh, I didn't know they were planning this Normandy invasion, and they had orders, anybody that can stand up and hold a rifle, throw him in the infantry. And uh, so, swish, our basic training was over, and I got was on a boat to Europe in England, and luckily I landed at Omaha Beach in Normandy, France, eight days after the first invasion. Luckily, or I probably wouldn't be here. Everybody, it was a wipeout. Anyway, they had driven them inland a ways, and so I uh, got, uh, it was a little, little healthier. And you know, continue on, after we got way up, we went across France and into the bottom part of Belgium, into a into Germany, and every couple of months they'd send you back to a rest camp, at least, you know, for 10 days. So they sent me back to Spa, Belgium. And, you know, they always sent up a little entertainment group, like a, a singer, a dancer, a comedian. They had a little group playing. Pianist I recognized as a kid I went to university with. And uh, so after... They had played. I went up and said, how you doing, Mike? Russ, what are you doing here? And I told him. And uh, he uh, said, let me see what I can do. So he wasn't normally playing piano. He was a good pianist, but he wasn't normally doing this. So he, he was, his job was writing the history from the back lines of the war. And uh, oops, none went into the microphone, don't worry. Now... So what he did is he went back to headquarters and he looked through all of the lists and he found that there was a division, 78th Division, coming up just new into the war and they were short, you know, the band was short, a trumpet player. And it just happens I played trumpet among a few other things. And uh, so he said, transfer this guy into <clears throat> band. <clears throat> he said, we can't do that. They changed from 2nd to 7th Army yesterday. She said, try it. So anyway, at the rest camp, I'm on the truck, loaded up, issued ammunition, ready to go again. And somebody shouted, anybody in the name of Garcia aboard here? And I said, yo. He said, get off. And they sent me back to this band. So it was a little healthier being in the band. There was no music at all till the war was over. We had to do all the dirty work. We loaded bodies on trucks. We went in and cleaned out places for communications to move into about the taking of the next town. We'd follow the tanks and the infantry into a town and just do menial jobs And because uh, they were moving across Germany by then. And uh, <clears throat> luckily, again, I don't think I'd be here if Mike hadn't done this, but when after the war was over, I took him out to dinner to repay him, saving my life. <clears throat> and uh, when I got out of the army, they finally, the war was over, they sent me back here, and I went right back to my job at NBC. It was a law, you must go back to the job you were in. So 
Tommy Peluso was still musical director there, a mad Italian. Don't get me wrong, I love Italians. I'm married to one. <clears throat> but uh, he went upstairs. You know, there at NBC, there was a whole, many, many, many desks of uh, vice presidents with nothing to do. And he said, would you musical morons stop sending these stupid directives down to the music department? It's true, it's what was going on. But swoosh, they fired the whole orchestra, Peluso, me, the two copyists, clean sweep, everybody out. So I said, what am I going to do? I got to earn a few bucks. You know, I could still play a little trumpet here and there in bands. But So I took a job teaching at Westlake School of Music. <clears throat> this was a good school in there that those days because the students were, you know, they got the GI Bill supporting education. <clears throat> so I had a class, an arranging class, monster big arranging class, full of guys out of uh, Stan Kenton's band, you know, Les Brown's band. We had great, I had three hour arranging class. I'd lecture from discuss for an hour. Then the guys would write things for an hour. Then we'd play the things right in the classroom what the guys had done. I had a lot of great students. Some of them became good arrangers. Harry Betts was one of them. Bob Grettinger. Uh, oh, these fellows came to me for private lessons, too. Uh, a lot of them did very well. Anyway, it was a joy. But Alvin Learned, who owned the school, uh, he had learned at university how to teach. Not He wasn't much of a musician. And he said, you know, I noticed some of the guys are coming a little late to class. I'm going to put a board up there, and if they come on time, you give them a silver star. If they come on time all week long, you give them a gold star. And imagine I went in there and I told all these high-powered musicians, Conrad Gazzo, all these guys sitting there, and this, and we were just roaring, roaring, laughing. And old Alvin Learned comes in the door, what's happened? What's going on? We couldn't tell him. <laughs> they were laughing about his gold stars for being on time and silver stars. <clears throat> and uh, where do I go from here? Any of you have any questions? I have no secrets whatsoever. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, there was no arranger society, but Arthur Morton and his brother, Lynn Murray, Dave Raxon, who wrote Laura, of course, and uh, who else? It's been a while. But anyway, we formed the arranger society, and it grew very large, very quickly. And you know, we had guests that were fabulous. Leopold Stokowski came. We'd have a dinner, you know, his dinner meetings always. And Arnold Schoenberg came. We got to meet all these people and hear them and know them a little bit. Uh, and uh, we had a rehearsal symphony. We rehearsed in Beverly Hills every once a month on a Sunday morning. And uh, we could write things for the symphony and hear them right away. Of course, the Mortons were involved in Evenings on the Roof with chamber music, modern chamber so we could write this kind of thing and hear them played. It was a great opportunity at that time. And uh, I uh, I got to meet more famous composers besides Schoenberg. I never got to know him very well. I don't know if anybody really did, but uh, he, he would write a theme, you know, you know, he said, I think that's a gorgeous melody. 
<laughs> I always stood back. I was always afraid his ego would explode. But, but uh, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to meet and know Stravinsky and spend time with him. What a great man he was, too. We all learned a lot from him, I'm sure, about composing, arranging. And, uh, but he had a great sense of humor. Uh, I was at a session in the booth with him when they were recording. Uh, uh, who's that German composer? Writes. Stokhausen. And they were recording, I think, about a nine-piece group. And uh, Stravinsky sitting in the booth, you know, listening, and I'm with him. And uh, the tuba had to put a mute in and a mute out. He had an upright tuba, you know. It's a little difficult putting a mute in and to having two bars to pull the mute out. And so Arthur Morton stood on a chair in back of the tuba with this big mute and put it in on the right cue and pull it out on cue. And Stravinsky laid down a dollar bill and then two dollar bills and put a note on the for Arthur Morton. One dollar for putting mute in, two dollars for taking mute out. <laughs> but uh, with our rehearsal symphony we had, you know, Stravinsky would come down and we were the first one that played his little circus polka, which is a delightful little first time he ever heard it. We read it through for him. So another wonderful opportunity I had I had a three-hour lunch with Sostakovich at the uh, Bel Air Hotel, again with my cronies, Lynn Murray and, <laughs> and uh, the Morton brothers, and I, I've forgotten who. And uh, he was such a wonderful man. He said, isn't it? We get along so beautifully on a personal level. It's so sad our governments act like little children. He was such a wonderful man. He was happy. I told him I had learned so much because I took his scores when I was just a young kid. I took his uh, fifth symphony, of course, and his first symphony, and took the scores and put them down into a two-line piano sketch so I could really study his orchestration, his form, his harmonies, his, how he developed a theme, you know. And he was so happy that I had told him I had learned so much from him. He, uh, he lived in fear of his life. I think he felt confident the Bell Hotel, Bel Air Hotel, they wouldn't have the table bugged with a microphone. But he lived in fear of his life, because all you had to do is have some dumb uh, official in the government say he's writing capitalistic music and it could be off to Siberia. You just disappear. He's uh, such a... Sorry. He wrote music to please them for a while. You know, he'd have to write big choirs singing hooray for the government, hooray, hooray, and uh, idolize the uh, leaders. And uh, and finally, he, when he got older, he said, the hell with it, I'm going to write what he wants. And so when he got down around, what was it, the 10th, 11th symphony or so, he went back to writing what he damn pleased, which was wonderful. You're so lucky you can get by with writing what you want and not be told by a government how to do it. Anyway, I wrote a book. Well, when I went to, to Westlake College of Music, I said, what am I going to teach these kids? So I made a, I don't know, four, six-page outline of things I should cover. And then I wrote examples, uh, little musical examples for that. Now, my wife and I 
pasted it up. We rented an electric typewriter, no computers back then, and uh, we pasted up a book and ran it off on an old Gestetner machine where you get all black ink all over you. We ran off 60 copies and they went boom. They sold immediately. I said, hey, maybe we have something. We put two ads in Downbeat. Downbeat was the magazine that all musicians read and for two months in a row. And that started selling books. They were $5 each, and that was enough money in those days. And uh, every book that sold, an order would come back for a load more, you know. Like North Texas State ordered one book, and they sent back an order for 100. And uh, Berkeley, oh, you know, universities, high schools all over the country ordered. And it got too big for my lovely wife to uh, carry books down to the post office and keep books and, you know, do all of this, so we gave it to uh, an honest publisher. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Mickey Goldson, Criterion. So we gave it to him and let him handle it from there on out. And you know, later, Mickey Goldson came and said, Russ, a lot's happened in the last 15, 20 years. Why don't you update the book? So I started, and it turned into a whole new book, book two. So there's book one and book two out. and those books, uh, there was nothing like it when I wrote it around 1950 or whatever. Nothing. There were no books at all about this, and uh, that's probably why it took off. But uh, anyway, the two books now are all over the world, <clears throat> and they're in six different languages. You can buy it in German, French, Spanish, uh, Chinese, Finnish, uh, what else? Oh, I wrote it in American. A British friend of mine said I should have it translated into English. <laughs> but I wrote it in bebop, I guess. Well, you know, I'd done everything in Hollywood. That's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? I'd worked with all of the, f I can name drop like crazy. I'd worked with all the famous singers, you know, Louis, Ella, Sammy Davis, Sarah Vaughan, oh, it goes on and on and on and on. I'd worked with them all at that of that era, and uh, I'd worked at films. I I must have worked on over a hundred films, either doing arranging or composing or conducting or whatever, or maybe all three. Universal gave me an office there. I had for 25 years at least, and uh, I also worked MGM, all the other studios. But uh, one day I said. You know, I'd, every man's dream sailed the South Pacific. So we had a trimaran, and we jumped in the trimaran one day. The day before I was leaving, Joe Gershenson at Universal said, Russ, I want you to come in tomorrow. I've got a feature film for you to compose. I said, Joe, if I put it off for this. He said, put it off six weeks, do the film, then take your little trip. So I said, if I put it off for this, I'll put it off for something else and something else, and pretty soon I'll be too damn old and uh, or not in good enough health to take this trip. So he said, what can I say? Call me when you get back. And uh, anyway, I worked at Universal. I'll tell you how I got into Universal. Hank Mancini was doing the Glenn Miller story, and uh, Miller's wife had the library, and they had they were missing five tunes that they wanted to use. And they said to Hank, who can take these off the recording just like it is? And he said, call Russ. 
I don't know why he thought I could do it. Apparently I did it okay because my foot was in the door at Universal then. I worked on uh, an Orson Welles film with Hank after that. I've forgotten the name of it, but uh, from Touch of Evil, Touch of Evil. But anyway, from then my foot was in the door at Universal. I got called for everything. <clears throat> and uh, I also worked other film studios. My, one of my favorite jobs at MGM, they, George Pell heard a CD I'd done on it called Fantastica, Music from Outer Space. It was way before a lot of these things were happening, and I had to really be tricky. We had no computer effects, so <clears throat> I took a couple percussion men in the studio, and I had somebody uh, hit a musical saw with a soft mallet and wiggle it. MGM had a big gong. I had somebody hit it with a soft mallet, and I took a mic to the edge, and it went way up into the highs, and I blew in uh, water with gelatin, blug, 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 and I took a table knife, went brrrr, and I made every all kinds of wood blocks. I made every kind of sound I could think of, and then I got with the engineer, and we ran a lot of these things at different speeds or backwards and through feedback echo. And I made up a little library of kind of weird sounds. And uh, so with this fantastic album I'm talking about, Music from Outer Space, I'd happened to be in New York. I'd done an album of, of all Johnny Green songs, and he had a big opening in New York. And uh, I mean, a big send-off for his album. And uh, Dave Cap of Cap Records was there, and Dave said, "Russ, do me a CD out on the West Coast, and whatever you like." And so I went in, and I had this idea for this, and I did the the first session, and I had all all the weird woodwinds I could find, you know, bass flutes and contrabassoon, you know, all kind of four French horns and a lot of percussion. And uh, I didn't add the effects yet. I sent him back the tapes, you know. The, and when I called him on the phone, he said, Russ, you know, I thought you were going to do something like Leroy Anderson. I said, if you'd wanted something like that, all you had to do was ask. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And I said, I'll tell you what, send me back the tapes. I'll send you the money for the cost of the studio and the musicians for this session. And... I took it down to Liberty Records, and boom, they picked it up. They paid me off immediately, and I finished the CD there. And it became one of their good-selling CDs. Anyway, George Pal heard this CD, who, I don't know if you remember him, he was a genius with animation and effects. And uh, he was doing the, the film The Time Machine at MGM, so he called me to do the music. And uh, he gave me a script. And the script, oh boy, I'm going thousands of years into the future. I can really write some wild music. So I did, and I went in to see him, and, and I sat at the piano. I don't play very well, but I can give him a little idea. Very nice, Russ, but he didn't seem very enthusiastic. So I went home, and I wrote a little English folk song, 1900. This film starts in 1900. You know the George Wells time machine story. And uh, so... He said, oh, great. He thought that was wonderful. It's, a, you know, a folk type, old English, old Irish. And, uh, of course, doing the film, I used all of those dissonant things because when you got these cruel monster Morlocks down under the ground, 
cap capturing Yvette Mimeo, you know, gorgeous young blonde. It was Rod Taylor and Yvette Mimeo's first film in Hollywood, and this made them both real big uh, people. And uh, anyway, he, he loved all these kind of effects I did, and he had to do his effects, you know, like a, a, a person sitting there killed by a Morlock, and all of a sudden they're starting to decay and decay, and as time goes by and they get old and old, he had to change their makeup and shoot a few more frames and change their makeup again. Pretty soon the whole thing goes down into skeleton and then down into dust. But he had to do all of these things, no computers, and I had to do all the music effects without computers. But this film is a cult classic also. There are clubs all around the world. I get emails every week. In fact, there's a website here called the Time Machine website that somebody in Burbank has, <clears throat> and people go into there, and there's, they, you can buy plans to build your own time machine. You know, it's got a big, I don't know if it works or not, but a big round thing that goes around, and then there, pretend you're going off into space and time. And uh, I can go on and on and on. Okay, it's enough for today. I think. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.